0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for not only the things going on in our lives, but the things going on in this world. Because we can still see the moving of your Holy Spirit at work. We can see it changing hearts. Lord, as much as we see the enemy at work in our lives and in the world, Even that much more do we see the work of the Holy Spirit magnified. We thank you that that your power will always be greater, and you will always be accomplishing, accomplishing infinitely more. We thank you for your word that speaks to us. No matter what time or culture we're in, it always speaks the truth to us. We can always hold that dear. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There can be a lot of drama that happens in a courtroom setting, can't there be? Whole television series, in fact, have been based on and around this idea of courtroom drama. The famous television series Law and Order lasted for 20 years and holds the record for the longest running hour long primetime program. It spawned four spin off programs and a movie the reality show the People's Court has lasted for a whopping 32 overall seasons from 1981 to 1993 and then it took a break and then from 1997 to the present. Needless to say, Americans enjoy watching the drama of a courtroom, whether scripted or real life unfold to a conclusion whether or not it's satisfying. That's just something we enjoy as Americans. Towards the end of a court case, at least the big ones anyway, the the judge has both lawyers, prosecution and defense, give what? (laughs) Kind of give a big hint up here. They, they, They give their closing arguments. While during the whole duration of the court hearing, both sides give the evidence and call up witnesses for their their, uh, sides, but the ebb and flow of the drama all leads up to the closing arguments. That's what really matters when it comes down to it. Sometimes the strength of a closing argument can change the whole direction a case was heading. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul gives his strong and forceful closing argument to summarize all he said to his Galatian brothers and sisters in Christ and to back up his whole assertion of faith being based on God's grace and God's grace alone. Again, as a second New Testament book probably to have been chronologically written behind James' letter and as Paul's very first recorded letter to any church we'll see the forcefulness and strength behind uh, the deep theology that we take for granted today and is crucial for our very standing before God. So that's what we'll take a look at today. The first point that we come to in, in this last passage of Galatians is the call to attention. In verse 11, this is what we read. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. At first glance, this seems like an odd insertion to this letter, doesn't it? Paul has gotten done with this whole long theme spanning 21 verses that we finished up last week, all having to do with the spiritual war we're all embroiled in, believer in Jesus or not. Throughout this letter, Paul has flowed from one topic into another. But here, Paul just brings everything to a screeching halt, doesn't he? And he, see, he says something kind of random. And that's his point. He makes a break for everyone, the writer and the recipients, to take a deep breath before he launches into his closing argument. It's similar to when I can tell that when I'm going through a, a long explanation of something important. And I look out here from the pulpit and I see some just start to fade and fade and fade. And then when I declare, and that's the earth-shattering truth we come to, all of a sudden they look up and, what did I miss? That's the effect it seems like Paul is trying to get across here. Anybody who's been fading through his letter, he brings to a screeching halt and he's saying, all right, Now, I want, if you haven't been paying attention, now I want you to be paying attention. To shake everyone up in order to all be, all together be listening to his closing argument. How does he do this? He says, Look, everyone, look at what large letters I'm writing here. What does he mean by this? As we've been working our way through this letter from Paul to the Galatians, maybe you might remember this, you might not. What have we discovered? We've discovered that Paul perhaps suffered from a medical condition known as ophthalmia to us today. It's a condition that affected the eyes. It was an inflammation of the eyes that slowly started diminishing your eyesight. This could have been what Paul was referring to back in Galatians chapter 4 when he said, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. They didn't take a look at him and say, well, he looks weak. I'm not going to listen to him. Paul even refers to his eyes in connection with his bodily condition. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me so that I could see better. Ophthalmia is the inflammation of the eyes that if left untreated will eventually lead to blindness. At the very least, eyesight begins to diminish with ophthalmia. It can happen for any number of reasons, one of which is trauma to one or both of the eyes. We have an event, what's very interesting with this is that we have an event recorded for us where this trauma could have very well occurred during his first missionary journey when he was in the process of preaching the gospel to the Galatians. We read in Acts chapter 14, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, and Derbe is one of those Galatian cities. I would think that if anything happened to Paul in his life, this is probably one of the best contenders for trauma happening to one or both of his eyes, being stoned almost to death. Paul refers to this medical condition in the very same letter. So could these words in verse 11 be in connection with that medical condition that Paul knew, that the Galatians knew, that he had? There's a good chance. And that's why he says, look with what large letters, because he had to write them large to see them. In addition, we read in some of Paul's later letters that he used a scribe to write his letters. And we can presume he used a scribe to write this letter to the Galatians. For here in verse 11, Paul introduces something new. He outright declares, Look, I'm writing this in my own handwriting. As if to say, the whole rest of this letter is not in my handwriting. Now it's my own handwriting. Because of this ophthalmia, we can presume that he refers to the words he's writing as big letters because his eyesight is starting to diminish. But this wasn't the only reason, as we've talked about already. Paul is writing this last part to get his reader's attention and to solidify that the letter was really coming from him. He uses a very similar way of saying this elsewhere. He says in 2 Thessalonians, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. This is how I do it. In other words, Paul is saying, pay attention. Next, Paul gets, gets into his summary and strong closing arguments. So we have the call to attention, and now we have the controversy. What his closing argument is, centers on. Paul continues his closing argument with these words in verses 12 through 13. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is essentially saying the Jewish believers in Jesus who are trying to force you to adhere to the Jewish law in order for you to achieve salvation don't even care about you. Think about it. They don't even care about you. They're doing it for their own selfish reasons. They're doing it for two reasons. To avoid persecution from the Jewish community themselves and to boast in what they were able to do with the Gentile believers in Jesus. This is what compromise looks like, right here. This is what compromise looks like when it comes to the gospel. The Jewish community could not fathom the Jewish Messiah being crucified and dying. That was simply unthinkable. It was unthinkable and highly offensive to a Jewish person. How dare someone claim that the great king who was supposed to come and overthrow the oppressive and corrupt Roman regime and set up the Jewish kingdom of abundance and peace was actually that guy who was arrested by the Romans and sentenced to die a humiliating and tortuous criminal's death. That's offensive. Why in the world would you tell me that? To get an idea for us, us, it's It's similar to when we as followers of Jesus come across an image created by someone to ridicule our belief in Jesus as our savior and our king. That pain that you feel, that offense that you feel, that's what the Jewish community was feeling about Paul, this guy Paul going around and saying that the Jewish Messiah, this great person that was supposed to usher in the kingdom of peace was crucified as a criminal. The message Paul was spreading was saying that the prized and treasured Jewish law was essentially empty of making anyone right before God. Well, that flies in the face of everything the Jewish people believed as well. Not only that, but Paul was claiming this rabble-rouser whom the Jewish community had condemned to death was actually the Jewish Messiah. How insane does that sound? No wonder Paul was beaten to death so many times by the Jewish community. Add to that now that the Jewish people saw themselves as better than everyone else because they were God's chosen people and had God's law. And there eyes, this upstanding Jewish man named Saul, who turned into one of those Christian cult people, was now spitting on God's law and inviting those gross and inferior Gentiles to share in the blessings that were only reserved for the Jewish people. Now we can see why people were getting so angry at Paul. And those Jewish people who followed after Paul's message along with those new Gentiles who thought they got a piece of the dream now too. How dare they think that? So now we can see why the Jewish Christians who made up the Galatian churches were trying to coerce the Gentile Christians to adhere to the Jewish law. Now we get it. Now we know the why. Like I said, there were two reasons. Number one, these Jewish Christians were scared of their fellow Jewish community. They were outright scared of them. They were scared that the Jewish community was going to turn on them, persecute them, and even kill them for turning away from the Jewish faith to believe in some weird cult that followed a guy crucified on a cross and regarded him as God. Not only that, but we have a privileged glimpse into the very earliest days of the church here in this letter to the Galatians shortly before the Jerusalem Council of 49 AD, settled a lot of the issues between Jewish and Gentile Christianity. We see these tensions. What Paul is referring to here in these verses is one of the first movements in the earliest days of the church that occurred only about 15 years after the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. Here is that movement. The Jewish Christians, and at least the Galatian churches anyway, had an idea. In their minds, a brilliant idea. This was the idea. Let's just compromise. Let's compromise. We'll let the Gentiles stay in our churches, but to get the Jewish community off our back, we'll force them to adhere to the Jewish law. We'll say to them, Okay, all right, let's hold our horses a little bit here. I know you're excited to have this new faith in Jesus and everything, and Paul told you that it didn't matter if you were from Jewish background or not, but we're going to let you in on a little secret. You can't be fully Christian without being fully Jewish, too. After all, wasn't Jesus Jewish? To Gentile Christians who didn't have much knowledge of their new faith, it would have been very easy for them to be swayed. After all, their brothers and sisters in Christ, who came from a Jewish background, surely had more knowledge about all of this, right? And for the Jewish Christians, they were patting themselves on their back and saying, look what we did We diffused the situation and ensured our safety by compromising with the Jewish community that the cross didn't really have much to do with their faith as the Jewish law continued to have. That's exactly what Paul is addressing as completely wrong. This is the setting for which Paul even wrote this letter to the Galatian churches in the first place. Paul is telling the Gentiles, guys, Listen, your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ are not doing this for you. Take a step back and look at it. They can't even follow the law themselves. And yet they're fully expecting you to. They're doing this. Why they're doing this is they're doing this to protect themselves and to be able to boast about their intelligence and coming up with a compromise. On the other hand, Paul says, I had... And still have no ulterior motives when I preach to you about Christ. In verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. To the Jewish Christians, the cross was the most shameful aspect of their faith in Jesus as their Messiah the cross and everything that surrounded it was the most shameful aspect of their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. But to Paul, the cross was the most glorifying aspect of their faith. The Jewish Christians still wanted to retain their identity as Jewish people with the law and the self-righteousness associated with that law. And that Jesus was merely the, the, the prophesied Messiah in that faith. Put yourself in their shoes. It would be very easy to do that, wouldn't it? You already have a faith, thousands of years old, with a law that is brilliant. And as, as, you've been, as we've been going through the book of Exodus, we've seen that. With a law that's brilliant. And your God has told you that out of all the people groups in the world, you're his favorite. Yeah, there was a part that said there would be a deliverer, which you believe was Jesus because he fit all the criteria. And yes, he died, and he, but he rose again, and he's coming back again to set up, set up his everlasting Davidic kingdom. Out of all of that, the fact that the Messiah king was stripped of his clothing, made fun of, beaten beyond recognition, whipped with a cat of nine tails, and nailed unceremoniously to a rough-hewn torture device perfected by the Romans, is the piece of the puzzle that you want to forget. That's out of place. That doesn't go with all of that. Especially considering it was the Jewish community's doing that this all happened to the Messiah King in the first place. It's just awkward. It's awkward and it's embarrassing. And you want to forget about that little piece of it. Why? Why did they want to forget that? Because they still had ties to the world. They feared what the Jewish community thought of them. They still wanted to identify as being Jewish. And they still liked the comfort of relying on their own self-righteousness. That's what a lot of people continue to want to hold on to, isn't it? They want to continue to hold on to some perceived sense of self righteousness as their means to be good with God and go to heaven someday. They think, I'm not that bad. Look at this other guy over here. I'm not as bad as him. What that actually means is, I don't need a savior. I don't need a savior because I haven't sinned all that badly. So why do I need a savior? But to Paul, the cross was everything. It represented two things, according to one biblical scholar. One, it represented a complete break with the world. The way it did things and the way it thought about things. God used the shameful things of the world to shame the wise. This included the Jewish way of thinking you could earn a good standing with God if you were simply good enough. The cross smashed that way of thinking. The cross put that way of thinking to death. Most Jewish people could just not get past that. That that just did not make sense to them. They could not understand how one man's righteousness could be applied to your account. That went completely against everything they believed. And that was the point. A complete break from the world. The cross represented a complete break from that way of thinking. I like this quote from one biblical scholar. And this is it. Paul looked at the world and its self-righteousness and allurements as dead. While the world looked at Paul as if he were dead. That's exactly what Paul is getting across in this verse. The new covenant reintroduced something completely new. At its heart, it was the Abrahamic covenant, which was salvation based on faith and not works, as Paul has already explained earlier in this letter. But now it has been expanded to include all people from all nations, backgrounds, and languages. The new covenant is based on Jesus' righteousness being transferred to our broke righteousness bank accounts and it flies in the face of every other religion that's based on how well you follow certain rules. That's exactly why Paul writes this. But we preach Christ crucified, the cross. The Jews, the stumbling block. just cannot get past that. And to Gentiles foolishness. Any faith based on earning your own salvation. Be placed in an afterlife paradise. Or beneficial reincarnation. Just cannot get past this foundational truth of biblical Christianity. That you will never be good enough. You will. Can will never be good enough it's the crux of biblical Christianity a simple faith in accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf for our sin with the spiritual transaction of his righteousness being applied to our souls which God only sees when we accept that sacrifice to pay our sin debt is all it takes that's it that's biblical Christianity at its core Jesus referred to it as a childlike faith. Nothing more can be added to that, or it's not biblical Christianity. Nothing can be taken away from that, including the cross and all that it represents, or it's not biblical Christianity. A faith based on earning your own salvation will always cause you to be looking over your shoulder and hoping you've done enough good and not enough bad to earn it. But a faith based on Jesus' substitutionary payment for the fact that you'll never be good enough will always give you the peace of knowing that you'll never be good enough. That's the point because Jesus is good enough and that's all you need. Not only did the cross represent death to the world and the world's systems, but it represents new life for those who put their trust in what was accomplished on it in verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's all that matters. Paul says something very similar when he, when he writes elsewhere. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, being circumcised, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew. He is, he is a child of God. One who is God's favorite. One who is after God's own heart. Who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not that which is of the heart, it is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It has everything to do with a new creation, your heart being circumcised, so to speak. The point of both of these passages is this it doesn't matter in the slightest if you've been circumcised according to the law and have followed the law perfectly, that doesn't matter at all. What matters to God is that you've been given new life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit cannot and will not indwell you if you are not a child of God and you cannot and will not be a child of God unless you have faith in the substitutionary sacrifice payment of Jesus. New life and being transformed does not and cannot come from the law because a self-righteous following of the law is based on who? Myself. New life and transformation cannot come from yourself because you are a fallen and limited human being. New life and transformation can only come from outside yourself and it can only come from God working in you through his indwelling of of you through the Holy Spirit. All those fruits of the Spirit that you guys thought we would never get through, that we've been talking about, cannot be fulfilling satisfying and eternal if they do not come from God and rather you try to manufacture them. If you try to create those yourself, they're not actually fruits of the Spirit. That's why they're called fruits of the Spirit. In other words, true joy is not actually joy if you try to manufacture it yourself. It has to come from outside of you. It can only be created in you by someone outside of you and in you at the same time. It is that new life, that whole new way of looking at things that can only come from what was accomplished on the cross by putting to death the whole way the world processes things. So to God, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile in background. It only matters if you've been made into a new creation by the new life Jesus gives by his resurrection and the Holy Spirit. What the Jewish Christians thought was a hang-up about faith in Jesus was actually what brought them lasting freedom. It was actually what it was all about. And verse 16 And those who will walk by this rule. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. God is not replacing Israel with the church here. As many interpret this passage to mean. Rather he's referring to two different groups of people. This blessing would be upon those who follow the rule of what verse 15 was just describing. That of finding no righteousness in yourself but in the transformation of being a new creation by way of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means anyone, regardless of backgrounds, both Jewish and Gentile. As much as Paul has been rebuking the Jewish Christians this whole time in his letter, he wants to make something very clear when he gets to this point. As much as he's been rebuking them throughout the whole letter, he wants to make something very clear. That the blessing would also be upon the faithful remnant of Israel. That is, those Jewish people who accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Just because they had been causing all this trouble did not mean they lost their salvation. Yes, they needed to change but at no point did they lose their salvation. If anything, as we read elsewhere, the Jewish people who recognize Jesus as their Messiah are held in high regard. After all, as Paul will write, salvation came first to who? To the Jewish people. And then to the Gentile people. And the only reason the Gentiles have a chance at salvation through Jesus at all is because the Jewish people, by and large, originally rejected Jesus. But as Paul notes here, God will always have a special place in his heart for those who ethnically came from Abraham, those of Jewish background, and who also accept Jesus as their Messiah. That was the basic summary of the main theme Paul was writing to the Galatians about. About the problems associated with the Jewish Christians trying to force the Gentile Christians to follow the Jewish law and what theological and salvific meaning there is that goes beyond that. So, we had the call to attention, we had the controversy, what Paul had been addressing throughout this entire letter, and that he summarizes here. And thirdly, we have the closing. Here Paul gives the equivalent of when a lawyer from either side is finished with their closing argument, and what do they say? I rest my case, right? Paul is done with what he wants to say to the Galatian churches, and he has no more to say other than this in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Paul is basically saying what exhausted parents say to children who have been misbehaving all day. This is the last time I'm saying this to you. Paul appeals to the brand marks of being a bondservant of Jesus. In Paul's day, slaves and cattle would be branded to show who they belonged to. For Paul, the scars he's received from persecution by the same Jewish community that those causing trouble for the Gentile believers in Galatia were scared of are his brand marks of belonging to Jesus. In addition to the authority that Paul had as an apostle, which he backed up at the very beginning of this letter, the brand marks of scars physically showed that he had been paying his dues For the sake of the gospel and should be listened to as an authority in the early church no he wasn't one of the original 12 apostles but other than the evidence he's already given at the beginning of this letter his scars were a sign of the authority of his apostleship that he had been through it for the sake of christ because of that the galatians must and needed to listen to everything he had just laid out for the peace of the Galatian churches, and the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. Paul ends his letter with these words that are very similar to other greetings he's used elsewhere in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. This letter is different from others of Paul's letters. Don't be closing your Bibles yet. I'm starting to hear that. Don't be closing them yet. Paul ends his letter with these words, and this letter is different from others of Paul's letters because instead of perhaps dulling down the power of his message with names of who else was sending their greetings or other minor requests or, or, or aspects Paul had, this letter ends with the same force as, as was at the height of the letter. The Galatians must heed his words for the gospel's sake. Not because he's lording over power over them and bullying them into obeying him, but because they were all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he's appealing to. That's why he includes, may the grace of Jesus be with you, my brethren. Paul does not want his affection for them in Christ to be lost. Yes, he's been rebuking them this whole time, but it's been done out of love. He doesn't want his affection to be lost. That love from him to them, along with the power of the gospel, was to be the motivation for them to change what they were doing. And with that, we finish Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And you know what's really interesting? I looked back at when we started Galatians, and what I found is that minus one day, One day, it was exactly one year ago that we first started this letter. Next week, we'll enjoy a blessed time of witnessing and rejoicing with those who have made the commitment to be baptized according to the Lord's command and hear all about what God is doing through missionaries to Peru, Glenn and Dorothy But And the week after that, it's cool how the Holy Spirit worked this all out. We'll have the break next week. And the week after that, we'll be starting up with what was most likely the next probable New Testament book written, Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica in 50 AD, about a year or two after the letter to the Galatians was written. I hope we've learned a lot from this glimpse into the earliest days of the church, especially outside of the Holy Land in this region of Galatia, only about 15 to 20 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven what issues they were struggling with, what still hasn't changed today, and what the solution is for sin, salvation, and church unity throughout the ages. And what is that solution? Our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. As Paul first started out this letter, this is what I want to close with today. Grace to you, this is all the way from the first chapter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Please stand with me as we close our our worship time.